Hello and welcome once again to the ALS Association Greater Philadelphia Chapter Podcast. I'm your host, Tony Heil, the Director of Communications and Public Policy at the Greater Philadelphia Chapter. Uh, welcome to th- on our latest episode. I've been looking forward to this one for months, even though it hasn't been on the calendar, um, with our Director of Patient Services, Brenda Edelman. If you've been involved in our chapter in the past 10 years, you have in some way um, been affected by the work that Brenda does. She directs all of the services here in some way, has an excellent staff, and uh, most of our chapter is devoted to patient care services, which I think a lot of people don't realize. And Brenda and I will talk about that a bit because if you're coming from an outsider perspective, you might not realize all the things that the chapter does on a patient care, care end. Uh, and I'll say from a personal perspective, having lost a loved one to ALS, and not getting all those services because it was with a different you know, different time and everything like that, then coming here and realizing all the things that are available um, makes every day uh, feel good because I know that those things are valuable to families. Um, before we go on, there's a lot of ways you can get involved to help support the work of our patient services department. Uh, one way is with our Walk to Defeat ALS. It's October, which we're calling Walktober because I'm being very clever. So you can join our Lehigh Valley Walk on October 17th or the Greater Philadelphia Walk to Defeat ALS on November 1st. You can join either of those teams on uh, at www.gpcwalktodefeatals.org. Brenda's going to be at the November 1st one, I think. And um, you can also get involved in other ways like our annual luncheon on November 13th and uh, all that at alsphiladelphia.org. And follow us on social media. Find all of our podcasts. Um, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, all at ALS Philadelphia, one word. So, all that done, that almost two minutes of me talking, is time to talk to Brenda and uh, talk about what she does here. So, Brenda, thanks for being part of this extraordinary event on Podcast History. Thanks for asking me, Tony. Aren't you excited? I am. I am excited. Um, I've been with the chapter since 2003, and I have a really fun and interesting history with the um, Greater Philadelphia chapter that at uh, probably back in the late 90s, um, I was asked to facilitate local support groups for patients and families that were dealing with ALS. So I really had the pleasure to understand more about what the chapter did and the privilege to work with patients and families in the context of a support group. So I've really been on board with the chapter about five years prior to my position as the director. So it really gives me um, a great understanding of the direct contact that all staff, and I am a licensed clinical social worker, I do carry a caseload of patients and families, and I do facilitate support groups in my role here, that I comprehensively understand uh, kind of being like on both sides of the fence, what it's like for our patients and families to receive the services from the clinical staff as well as the impact and the toll that it takes on the clinical staff to provide those services, which I don't want to ever lose track of. I think that's really important. So you're like general manager and you do the work of patient services. In a way, you're like the Chip Kelly of our team here, except that more people in Philadelphia like you. So you're probably more popular than him in our area right now. I can only hope to. Yeah. So um, so, but before you came here, you 
were and you were touched by ALS in terms of some of your work before you were fully on staff then? That's correct, by running uh, different uh, support groups. So it gave me exposure to understanding the plight of what the patients and families were dealing with back in the late 90s, which today I would believe, uh, based on the ability of all the chapters throughout the United States and, of course, the Internet becoming what it is as a resource to so many people, that the diagnosis process, which can be very trying and very difficult to navigate as a patient, is better. It's improved that patients and families are getting more accurate information regarding the symptomatology, treatment, and care, and diagnosis of ALS earlier on versus going for three years not knowing what their diagnosis is and even potentially having unnecessary or unwarranted surgeries. Mm. So one of the biggest differences I've noticed in my tenure with the chapter is that patients are getting diagnosed in a much more direct fashion so that they're not endlessly going through the medical maze of wondering what's going on with them. And hopefully they can get to the care of an ALS clinic, which is best practices, along with the chapter. Yeah, I noticed from the staff here, well, your staff, looking at videos of uh, famous people with ALS sometimes. I was looking at um, Buddy the Cake Boss, his mom had ALS, and I was looking with someone here, and they saw her for two minutes and like, oh, I recognize what's going on. So I'm sure even on that level, your staff is able to recognize things of ALS that maybe back then would have been harder to recognize in the same way. You, you know what to look for more, both as a neurologist and as a social worker. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, I would never be the one to diagnose the patient, but I can certainly understand the symptoms and the disease process to begin to alert and educate families about resources that I am probably more aware that they're going to need before they are. Hmm. So I agree with that. Absolutely. I've talked to other people about the internet and how sometimes people can find wrong information, find right information. Obviously they can connect with us and they can connect with national or other ALS organizations like ALS TDI and whatnot um, to learn something. And those are all good experts, but there's also crazy things out there for anything. Um, and, you know, you can use that to run for president even. And But um, I'm sure back then, in the 90s, you know, I've talked to some people that had ALS connections then. Um, the information was so small that you may find the one piece of wrong information and you didn't find the right one. So... Do you think it's better now, the information that's out there, how to connect with people and get things? Like, like our chapter wasn't, like, big on the Internet in the way it is now, for example. My sense from the general information-seeking folks that call into the chapter or that email us or, obviously, the emails that you get through our general, as we call it, email box through the chapter that you forward to me is that people are finding out that there's information. I think the caution is no one should self-diagnose. And one of the dilemmas, one of the evils, as I call it, with the um, Internet is that if we plunk in our symptoms, it's very likely that a variety of diseases will come up, including ALS. So ultimately, um, we try to direct patients, if they are calling, 
or I should really say individuals when they're calling in about their symptoms, I'm very uh, almost strict on the phone. Hopefully I am still understanding to the caller, but uh, I am empathic, but ultimately I really want to direct that individual calling in to consult with their primary care physician and or then a neurologist so that they are not going down a path that takes them in the wrong direction. Um, I do not, under any circumstance, diagnose a patient uh, on the telephone. Clearly, I'm not a neurologist, and we do what we can to direct people uh, based on geography to neurologists that specialize in motor neuron diseases, because mm -hmm. within every physician practice, there are subspecialties. So we want our prospective patients to be connected to a neurologist that understands motor neuron diseases and that can either rule in the diagnosis of ALS or rule out the diagnosis of ALS. So any neurologist that comes in contact with a potential patient will educate them that they actually have to be ruled out of many other neurological diseases before they can be given or ruled in to the diagnosis of ALS, which has its own complicated process, but we really rely on excellent neurologists um, in our uh, geography to help patients get through that. And that's part of the reason you and I have discussed that it's really best if someone's asking a medical question, asking me as a staff person, if you're a community ambassador, or volunteer, um, to pass that along to a healthcare expert, whether it's a neurologist, whether it's someone in our patient services department, a social worker, but don't assume that you're an expert. I don't assume I'm an expert. Some Oftentimes people come to me and say, you work the ALS Association. What is this like? Or can you tell me this? And I'll say, I can direct you to this resource or I can connect, tell you to contact Brenda or someone similar to do that because you don't want people getting the wrong information. It makes your job a lot harder that way. Agreed. Agreed. So you started as the director of patient services uh, ten years, over ten years ago now, working here, um, and the department was a lot different then, right? There, some of the people then they are still here now, like Elisa Brownlee, who's you know been here for since. I think Elisa and Susan Walsh are the two members of my staff that have been here longer than any other chapter staff uh, representative. Yeah, that's a interesting phenomenon that at this particular chapter, our chapter, that staff tends to have an extremely long tenure. Mm -hmm. There's a tremendous amount of uh, dedication and commitment from the individual members of the staff. The staff is obviously primarily comprised of social workers and nurses, and we never want to lose track of uh, Elisa's role as our assistive technologist. I fondly have called Elisa for many years now our toys and gadgets gal. Mm -hmm. Which as, I'm sure she doesn't mind. No, I, I think she introduces herself sometimes as that at this point, um, because her skill set and her knowledge is so unique to... Um, providing care specifically to our ALS population of patients and families. And, of course, our uh, administrative assistant who interacts uh, with all of the staff, that's Evelyn. Uh, we, we kind of joke, but we're not joking, that Evelyn's really the one running the ship because she actually knows what's going on 
within all of our different geographies where we provide services and care and is probably the primary person that interacts with every single staff person. Mm-hmm. So each staff person has a specific background of education, expertise, and a role within our patient services care unit. And each of our staff members as a patient services representative attends an ALS clinic and provides their level of services to patients and families at the clinic setting. And many of us have extra hats that we wear. Uh, One of our staff members might run a visiting volunteer program. Someone else runs an in-home care or respite program our accessibility program. It's almost endless if we really think about what each person does. And ultimately, they become sort of that guru and that go-to. So like you said a few minutes ago, you would say to somebody if they say, oh, Tony, we're really struggling at home. Is there any kind of in-home care? How do we get connected? Mm -hmm. You would really, as most people throughout the chapter, would know to refer that person to Wendy Barnes, who coordinates all of our in-home Uh, services programs. I mean, often families might start with me as the go-to, but then eventually they become specifically connected and they get a designated mental health contact as well as a social worker. So that becomes their team. And a lot lot of those teams, a lot of those uh, specialties kind of grew since you got here. And not to give you all the credit, because I'm sure you wouldn't take it anyway. Of course not. Uh, but you know, we, I know we had nurses and, and social workers and other expertise here, but, um, you've been able to see and work with the team to say, well, this is the kind of thing we need, or this is that there. I've always been really, um, excited. I don't know if that's the right word to see, like you guys come together and say, you know, there's this thing that we need that doesn't exist now or that did exist before. We need to do that again. Um, do you do that on a regular basis? Like working with like all across the department um, or just locally at the clinic area and say, you know, in South Jersey, we need this or how do you figure out what you need? I think often it comes directly from the staff Mm -hmm. and or the constituents, which are our patients and families where a social worker might particularly keep hearing from numerous families, I wish you guys had this, or do you know if there's a service for that? And many of the really limited services or limitations to what we, the organization, and social work professionals, nurse professionals across the board can provide is this kind of cradling uh, of 24-7 care. Um, I think what often happens is the designated caregiver and family members need to continue to go on with their lives. It could be that the spouse is the benefit, medical medical benefit provider for the family, the primary source of income for the family. The children are either in school or pursuing higher education. They're in college or uh, some adult children are now raising their own young families. And the caregiving needs sometimes become overwhelming that you would never want to leave someone with ALS potentially home alone if they can't manage to take care of themselves and or meet their own needs. 
And that could be bathing, dressing, grooming, toileting, transferring, mm -hmm. really depends on where the, the identified patient is at in the disease process. But then I go back and I think that if you had a different disease, you wouldn't have a Brenda Edelman to even call for any services or any resources. You potentially would be calling into a call center where there aren't individual local chapters that actually provide direct services and try to meet concrete needs in the community. Or you're just calling the government yourself instead of having someone like you contact the right government provider or something like that. Right. And I think most of us know what it's like to call into any bureaucracy. You could call in twice and not get the same answer twice. And you're certainly not going to be able to call back in directly to talk to Brenda Edelman. Especially if you don't know what to ask for. Right? You know, right. I always tell the story, my, my mother's mother had Parkinson's, my dad's dad had ALS. Um, which is neither of those are fun, but my mom had some sort of nursing background, and so she knew the questions to ask and the things to say no to uh, at times. And my dad, great person, smart, loving, caring son, he didn't have that same expertise. So you don't know what you don't know. Exactly. Which is the best thing about going to you guys is, you know, Melissa Call, who you can listen to in another podcast, she knows things that I don't know. I would go to her if I had an ALS question. Yeah, I mean, often our social workers and nurses really have a function where they're almost like a liaison or a concierge where they're making sure that you get connected, that you know the right questions to ask of your employer, your insurance company, just so that we're sending you on the right path of gathering information and then hopefully utilizing that information so that there aren't potential gaps or glitches in services and care. We all tend to be planners. In so your department or you mean generally? I, I, are. I think it's um, just something that goes along with the territory of the professions uh -huh. that we want patients and families to plan, to think about. And sometimes that's a very difficult thing to introduce or broach to a patient and family that is going through the disease because they're already potentially struggling with where they're at. And then we might take it to the next level and say, well, what's going to happen when you really are unable to transfer? How are you going to keep yourself safe from falling? What resources of durable medical equipment or support do you need hands-on coming in the home? So we want to make sure that our families are aware of our extensive durable medical equipment loaner program and other again resources that the chapter offers directly so when the time comes the family member can say I know you told me about that program or I know you told me about that resource I think it's time so um, I, I think the trust that we want to have and mutual respect that we try to connect with our patients and families on that level helps us further down the line for the family member or the patient to identify that we can be that person to help them and direct them and that they're comfortable to do that. Because I think asking for help inherently is difficult for all human beings. I just think that people don't want to ask for help. Yeah, I, I think that's normal. And I, I think that working here, I've become it's become easier for me to ask for help in other things in life because I see how important it is for you. And I imagine those first conversations with people, is, is that the hardest part? 
like that first time, both for them and for you, because you have to, you have to instill with them some trust because they're meeting you for the first time and your team, like we're going to help you. You have to get them comfortable with asking questions. I know that um, our staff at all levels usually goes to a clinic setting to see what we do. And so I've seen that firsthand, like hearing from patients, like this part's hard, like asking for things and and these questions. So um, what I'm saying is, is the, your main first job making sure people are comfortable with this very uncomfortable thing. Yeah, it's, it's very difficult. Um, we generally do what we can. I would say putting the patient and the family at the helm initially where they're getting the diagnosis, we will provide a packet of information, which I think gives people the opportunity to read things, mull it over versus a one-on-one with a social worker giving somebody way more information that they could process in, a, in, a, in, a, in, in that moment. So I think the packet, as we call it, a newly diagnosed packet that we give to patients and families where they can look at things at their pace, mm-hmm. kind of to absorb it and then go back to it as needed. And what we will then do based on a clinic visit or a call that we get from a patient or family is we'll begin to refer or suggest or recommend specific services or resources based on where the disease progression is and how that is impacting their functioning on a physiological, psychological, emotional level so that the patient's kind of being engulfed and taken care of. And I think the staff works really hard, really hard to take care of the caregiver. You know, um, in social work land, and I'm sure it's not so dissimilar for our nurses, very often the caregiver is kind of deemed the forgotten patient Mm -hmm. because people will always come up to the identified patient, oh, how you doing and what's going on? And the caregiver's just sort of standing there. Um, I did have one caregiver um, who always shared with me, he would always say, I kind of feel unimportant and invisible next to my wife when we're out because everyone was so engulfing and doting upon uh, the identified patient, which I think is normal. It's kind of like the mom with the newborn infant where everybody's ooing and eyeing Uh over the infant, but nobody's saying to the mom, Oh my God! How you doing? You getting any sleep? Yeah. You know. So and you know, um, I've seen your, your your way of acting. Like my wife came in at one point. You saw her after or whatever, and you're like, "Oh, how's how are you doing?" You thought about her, not that you didn't think about my son, but you thought about how she was doing just at the same level. It was important. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's just I just get into that mode of you know, wow, uh, which is good. More know, people caregiver. And, you know, I I think with this particular family that I was really connected to here um, at the chapter, I would always kind of say to the husband, well, you know, just keep in mind, she looks so good because of you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we would use some humor, but I think he understood that I just wanted to really acknowledge everything that he did to make sure that she was out and about and she looked fabulous. And that really was because of all of his efforts um, based on her instruction and direction, of Mm -hmm. course, but it's just really important. And um, we have specific support groups that are just for caregivers. 
We have specific programs. Uh, we actually have a caregiver caregivers day uh, coming up in November. Julie McKeever is our event planner extraordinaire. She makes sure that uh, we have specific programs for patients and families. But this particular program is just for caregivers. And it's one of my favorite programs because in the morning, uh, we will all gather at a very nice uh, off-site facility. And the social workers and nurses provide support groups for the wives and husbands and adult children and potentially teenagers that the patient might have. So we have a variety of support groups where we break people up based on their uh, designated role. So like I said, group for wives, group for husbands, you know, group for caregivers, you know, whatever they would fall into, what category. And then we have uh, the opportunity for a professionally led group it gives people the opportunity to get, again, more information. It's a safe environment to kind of vent about what it's like to be a caregiver. And it gives a whole group of husbands or significant others the opportunity to talk to somebody else that's dealing with the same thing they are. And plus it's things that you wouldn't want to talk about with your spouse. Everyone has those things, and especially in that situation. Right. And even though you might have a lot of good friends out there, they might not understand what your day-to-day -day world is like as a primary caregiver where everybody in the group does know what it's like to be a primary caregiver. And then the rest of the day, we provide some hands-on instruction. We get a, a clinician of professional background of an occupational or physical therapist to do hands-on demonstrations uh, for the caregivers that are attending the program and they get to see how durable medical equipment functions and some of the equipment that might look daunting to use by the time they leave my sense is they feel a lot more comfortable with the idea of using that equipment down the line if and when they need it mm -hmm. so that just becomes like an invaluable education you know I, I think most people will admit I don't want to know but then most people will also admit, well, now that I have a better sense of what that is, I feel a lot better because I was kind of freaking out, uh, freaking out about what I didn't know. So it's, it's, it's tough. But once you kind of see it, I think it puts people at ease. And that's the feedback I've gotten for a long time from caregivers. And you know how important a lot of these services are, whether they're for the patient or the caregiver. And so your job is to make people comfortable with, I guess, becoming comfortable with those things. You know, that's part of your job is to know, like, oh, they really could benefit from the Abrams in-home care program or by getting, um, by going forward with this device, speech device that right now might sound hard to do, but if they train for it now, it'll be important. So you're, you want to make sure that they feel at ease and kind of like that deep sigh so they can, they can move to that next step. That's certainly uh, that's certainly the goal. Absolutely. So, so you um, being a social worker coming here, I think, was important to you. Instead of just being a manager, like a, like, I think it's important too that you, Brenda Edelman, are the social worker who's running the show, as opposed to someone who's just like, here's the numbers, here's how you do this, um, because you brought that background of kind of empathizing with people through those groups first. My my bias is that, because uh, I've had the pleasure and, of course, the privilege to attend a lot of different 
meetings that our national organization over you know the course of my tenure here that I've had the ability to connect with other me's mm-hmm. at other chapters and um, my sense is is that most chapters really see themselves as a social service type agency mm-hmm. Because the tasks for the staff, and whether they're a small, small chapter with limited staff in a very rural area, or they're a huge chapter, like our chapter, one of the largest um, on the East Coast, that our role is like a, is truly a social service agency that provides a medical background. It's medical focus because it's disease focused, but it's social services. It's about resource, referral, and direct services. Mm-hmm. Um, there is no chapter that has a neurologist on staff. Right. So clearly we align ourselves and affiliate ourselves with the uh, best practices, the excellence of medical facilities in our geography. Mm-hmm. Um, here in Philadelphia, we're very lucky to have large, you know, great teaching facilities and all the different facilities that we connect with in our geographies in South Central. We also have those rural Central. areas like you talked about with other right. chapters have. And we have staff to provide services in those more rural areas. Mm-hmm. I mean, I almost feel like I have three or four separate staffs because the staff does work remotely. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a staff in North Central Pennsylvania, South Central Pennsylvania. I would say in this local geography, the Philadelphia Ambler area that goes as far down as Cape May, you know, that's, and that's our southern point. And then we have a staff person um, in uh, fondly, as we call it, the lower, slower Delaware area, so that um, our entire geography, there's go-to. We also have satellite uh, collaboratives in central Jersey. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm confident that our service providers, nurses, social workers, assistive technologists, Um, all can connect with patients and families in a way that if there's a service or resource out there or that we provide, they're going to get it. And you make sure that they're connecting with them on a personal level, that there's, like I said, that comfort level, that warmth um, that we all associate with Brenda. Of course, of course. But that, you know, you have talked about um, that so-and-so that is really – has a good connection with Melissa, so Melissa should help out with that, or with uh, Gail or Jen. Like, oh, they have a good rapport with them for whatever reason. Um, and I think that's probably important for them to be able to do their job well, like when there's a empathic connection that you discussed, um, though you didn't use those words. But uh, so you've also hired a lot of staff in the last 10 years. Oh, definitely. I've seen you after interviewing people where you are jazzed up about, like, the person they are more than the resume, right? Well, and that, is that important? Yeah. Like how, like knowing, not that the resume is not important. You're not like, oh, you worked at Wendy's, great. You probably know how to do mm-hmm. customer service, but um, you, I, you, I, I you, you care unique, about how they can connect with people. Yeah, I mean, it's a unique niche within social work and within nursing to want to work with chronic illness, mm-hmm. disease specific contact. 
Uh, because all we do is ALS. If somebody calls and they say they have Alzheimer's, I can't help them. Mm -hmm. If somebody's looking for a different type of resource, that's not my expertise. Mm -hmm. I have to really focus on the direct care and services for someone that has been diagnosed with ALS. So it's, it's very carve out. It's very specific. Um, my background prior to coming to ALS is I worked for, um, for more than 13 years, I worked for a large uh, rehabilitation facility. The major difference is, is I worked with people of a variety of diagnoses. It could have been stroke, amputee, brain injury, spinal cord injury. It was a vast variety of patients, families with different diagnoses. Mm -hmm. This is strictly one particular population. So I think that we become aligned and very connected with our patients and families. We also become very aligned and connected with our community collaboratives. Mm -hmm. If there's a particular service out there that we use often, we're going to be connected to that resource as well. So it's just it's just more focused. Mm -hmm. And do you like that? Do you think it makes it better for you because you're I able do. To... I mean, I, I think so. I do because I really get connected with our patients and families, and our community collaboratives. The other side of that, though, in terms of staff and me potentially having the responsibility to make sure my staff's okay and I'm okay, is it can get really intense. Yeah, I was going to ask that. It, does. It, it can take its toll. It gets hard for us on, you know, you can't see it here if you're listening to this, on the other side of the office because, um, you know, we I see certain people that I've become friends with at ALS. I see them every few months. Sometimes more regularly because depending on their involvement in things, like I do advocacy, so maybe they're very involved in meeting people like my friend Dave who passed away he was extremely involved like emailing about awareness things he was doing all the time but you guys become very involved in a lot of people so I'm sure your job is the hardest like not your specifically but that's a hard thing to debrief and decompress with your staff is the hardness of the disease I I would not disagree but at the same time there's something to be said when professionals take on a particular job and they are committed to staying at that job for some pretty remarkable amount of years. Yeah. Um, it, it's just, uh, it, it is pretty remarkable. And it's amazing how some of the people, uh, Maureen out in the South Central area, she had an ALS connection then came here. Like, it's always impressive to me to see people that are willing to come and stay knowing what it all entails. Agreed. I agree. So um, so we know how great that, how that is. You're also helping all those caregivers, like you said, in a lot of your support groups. And I, I was going to mention earlier, and I would written it down, forgot to, that you know we talk about how now we've served over 1,200 people in the last year um, with ALS. And I'm, that number may have come as a surprise to you, even. Um, but... Every, every person with ALS almost has some sort of caregiver in their life, at least one. So if we're helping in some way 1,200 people with ALS, that means at least 2,400 people counting the caregivers. And it's probably much more than that because there's families where there's multiple people caring for one person, right? So you're doing an outreach to thousands of people in some way to, to benefit those lives, right? Agreed. 
Yes. I'm just giving you all the credit I can. That's my job here. <laughs> well, it would be my staff as well. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm very fortunate um, that I have such a dedicated, hardworking group of people that uh, I can rely on. And I think that if any of us start to feel a little bit crispy, as we say, or burn out, we have each other to bounce off of or to cover if we have something going on in our personal lives and we need to focus on that for a period mm -hmm. of time. We know that we have uh, kindred spirits in our colleagues uh, that will help us to continue working with patients and families that need our support. Plus, you've got such a robust staff that you can say... I know that you, person A, have this very difficult group of people you're working with because situations are so tough, and this person might be able to help you out. You're like, you're able to navigate that because of years of experience doing it. Um, so that you have a lot of departments, a lot of people. Um, that's why people should donate, right? That's why people should do the events. I think that that's the, not the only reason. No, I. I, I I mean, obviously, we can't provide the services without all the efforts of our event, our, our, our colleagues that do our events as well as our development. I mean, that it's just they just go hand in hand. You know, it's mm -hmm. you can't do one without the other. Um, but I also think that the events afford patients and families again, this sort of camaraderie with other patients mm -hmm. and families. Because you're all there for a positive reason. Exactly. And a family that opts into forming a walk team, mm -hmm. whether it's their daughter that spearheads it or the spouse or their best friend, again, when they go to this walk and they see the amount of people on each team, whether it's a tinier team or a huge team, there's this sense of camaraderie. They're meeting people again that are dealing with the same issues. So a lot of times families will just find, uh, you know, I'm using kind of a clinical word, but it's really cathartic. It's just mm -hmm. this really awesome, intense experience where, you know, when you meet somebody that really understands what you're dealing with and you're in this really positive happy environment there's music there's free food there's activities and that's your for, there you go as long <laughs> as there's free food um and there's activities for children and you're really seeing people all out in shirts that they've designed and it just becomes like a festival and it's cathartic on both ends right because you, oh, you would much rather not that you don't want to see people come to clinic but you'd much rather see them surrounded by all their friends and loved sure. ones wearing their walk shirts absolutely so do you have any favorite events because um, you're at a lot of them. You, I was looking for pictures of you um, to post with the podcast, but you go you go to Hot Chocolate, you come to the annual luncheon, um, the, I, the walk, I, I advocacy I you've come to. I, I like them each for different reasons. I mean, I love the holiday party. Mm -hmm. um, I get to actually go shopping with oh, Julie yeah. to purchase, Yeah, I would say sometimes the better part of 150 gifts for a variety of aged children from mm -hmm. infancy up to 18. So that's always a lot of fun. Hot chocolate is such a beautiful event at the aquarium. Um, it gives me a lot of opportunity to interact. I generally am doing raffle tickets at golf. And I love advocacy um, because I spend a saturated day with usually two families mm -hmm. that I really, really get to know in a in a setting that's so different from any other setting. And because um, of where you are, sometimes people you don't know that well, like this year, you get to be with Ben, 
He's a veteran from Leah Valley who you really didn't know much. I did not. I did not have the pleasure of knowing Ben or his dad or his uncle because I don't get to get out much to Leah Valley Clinic. And um, it was a pleasure to hang out with that family for the day. I mean, I learned a lot. Mm-hmm. And um, our Caregiver's Day that I just kind of spoke about. I-, I guess if I really, really, really had to zoom in, my, my favorite programming in general would probably be... Um, our support groups. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, again, my bias and my social work bias especially is what people benefit and how they benefit from a support group is just, there is no comparison. Mm-hmm. They are connecting with other people that are taking that journey, that are going down a very similar path and to really be able to talk about with no inhibition about what this journey feels like as the patient, as the caregiver, with people that are also going through a very similar journey. And sometimes our patients use the word battle, and Mm -hmm. I want to acknowledge that. I think it's pretty incredible, and I get to facilitate those groups. Mm -hmm. So to be honest, I might feel like at 6.30 in the morning when I'm getting up and I'm getting ready to go to work and yada yada and I'm in work and it's 7.30 and I think, oh my God, my day is not going to end until 8.30 because my support group starts at 6.30. I might be feeling crispy at 6 o'clock, but when I leave the office at 8.30... You finish original recipe. I'm good. I am good. I am humming. My adrenaline is mm-hmm. pumping. I actually go home. I'm in a great mood. I'm able to go home and clean up the dishes and feel Because you can see the lights go off sometimes, right? Like, you can see, like, that dawning moment for certain people. Like, now they are they can feel comfortable for the first time. Yeah. And now they can get that help. And you know what they're going to get connected to. And when I want to end the group and I can't get people out of the room because they're chatting too much socially, I'm just really excited. So what I do is I kind of kick them out of the building and I make them talk outside mm-hmm. in front of their cars as I go home. And I think to myself, this is great. Mm-hmm. Now, this gentleman has this gentleman and they have somebody that they can talk to. Yeah, I've talked you know. to a bunch of patients throughout my communication advocacy work saying, you know, what's what do you think is the most valuable thing that you're able to get a power wheelchair? Is it that you're able to get the in-home care services or the, the communication device? And they're always extremely appreciative of all those things. But so often the thing that they say first is the support group and whatever nurse or social worker that they facilitate with. Like that connection is the number one thing that they talk about. Which has to feel good for everyone doing that. Because they're talking about that person on a personal level. I agree. So, um, we, we discussed earlier when we first started, like, how long is this going to take? And uh, we've been talking here for about 45 minutes. I know, it's fun, see? <laughs> More people should do this podcast. Um, so I don't need to get into a ton of other topics. We could probably go on for hours, which um, would be fun. But um, are there things that you think people need to know about ALS care services that you think that they should um, make sure to reach out to, questions they should ask, resources they should go to, um, I, I guess that I you'd like them to let them know now? To kind of put it in a summary, I, I would just want any patient or family member that is faced with a diagnosis... Or a potential diagnosis. To, yes, to connect with their... I mean this throughout, not Mm -hmm. just for our chapter, that they need to connect with an ALS chapter Mm -hmm. because the chapter is the conduit to get them to 
so many different resources that it's endless, which is a good thing. Mm -hmm. And that to really feel like that no question is a dumb question, that mm -hmm. all questions... Now, granted, you might ask me a particular question and I would have to say, boy, that's not something I can help you with. I would really need to refer you to our nurse or to... Which elite, is fine. You know, um, but ultimately, just for people... I don't want there to be an ALS patient out there that is not connected to an ALS association chapter. Yeah. That would be it. Well, that's a good thing. So... Um... If you are listening in the greater Philadelphia area, make sure to find all, all of our resources at alsphiladelphia.org. Um, but if you're listening to this and you're not in our chapter area, um, or you have a loved one that's from somewhere else in the country, go to www.alsa.org to find an ALS Association chapter near you to get the services you need. Uh, and for you can always join our Walk to Defeat ALS, www.gpcwalktodefeatals. Dot org. Brenda's going to be there on November 1st, Citizens Bank Park. Yes, thank you. Selling raffle tickets again. I hope so. Um, and she'll be at the annual luncheon. She'll be at Caregiver's Day. Uh, you can find all those events at alsphiladelphia.org. So thanks, Brenda, for taking time out of your very busy day to talk thanks. about what you do. Thank you for encouraging me to do this, Tony. See, it was <laughs> worth it, right? It was, indeed. All right, I got okay. your formal endorsement on recording. All right, thank you.